This ABA Journal podcast is brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. Their most significant innovation in 30 years it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com. Late last year, legal information giant Thomson Reuters announced that it was entering the business of providing legal services with its acquisition of Pangea 3, one of India's largest legal outsourcing firms. If lawyers weren't thinking about what legal outsourcing might mean for their practices already, this move got their attention. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and that's what we're discussing today on the ABA Journal podcast. Joining me is Michael Bell, the founder of the legal processing outsourcing advisory firm Frontarion, David Curl, lead analyst of the research and advisory firm Outsell, Inc., Cassandra Burke-Robertson, an associate professor at Case Western Reserve University, and Brian Robinson, the president of Council Press. The company assists lawyers prepare, file, and serve state and federal appeals. David Curl, as someone who studies legal information and publishing, what is your take on what the profession thought about the Thomson Reuters acquiring Pangea 3? Do law firms view this as competition, and should they? Well, uh, I don't know if they need to think of it as, as, as competition so much, but it should, I think, cause law firms to sort of reconsider what the relationship is with what we tend to call legal information providers. I think if you look at what's happened over the past 10, 15 years, the big legal publishers like Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis and Walters Kluwer, for that matter, have all embedded themselves to a large extent in law firm processes and law firm operations. This deal sort of highlights the extent to which these publishers have turned from vendors of information into strategic partners that can help law firms in a lot of areas. So certainly, you know, to the extent that outsourcing in general is seen as a competitive threat by law firms, then maybe they would look at this as a competitive situation. But I think it's more a matter of, you know, working more closely with the information providers on uh, more strategic initiatives like this. And if there's any competitive implications, I think it may be for the other outsourcing providers who might really be worried and concerned about a Thomson Reuters with all it can offer law firms coming into the space. Do you mind saying what you think some of those other providers might be? Virtually any, any provider of outside services to law firms now has to be concerned. The reason I say that is that if you think of what uh, Thomson Reuters provides to a law firm today, it's very extensive uh, legal research services, of course, the stuff that we're all familiar with. But in addition to that, they provide infrastructure for law firms in the form of, of practice management software, billing software. They provide continuing legal education and the services that support that. So really, any firm that's providing ancillary services into the legal industry has to realize now that they're up against a very large provider that's kind of expanding its role in the, in the legal industry. Okay. And Michael Bell, as someone who advises law firms on LPO issues, to what extent are these ancillary businesses with outsourcing an option for small and mid-sized firms? Are they something that's economically feasible for everyone or only the larger law firms? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's that's actually a really great question. Uh, you know, I think that this is a really interesting area, and, and for a bit of context, most of the work with legal outsourcing to date has been driven by large corporations, 
or in many circumstances law firms acting on their behalf. And so with a lot of this cost pressure driven by the uh, large corporate client base, it, it's typically the, the larger end of the spectrum in, in terms of corporations as well as the law firms uh, working with these global corporations, oftentimes large corporations that are outsourcing themselves. So they would perhaps many times expect that their law firms would do the same. So as that is a bit of context, that's where the market is right now. What's interesting and, and, and has been highlighted by the Pangea 3 deal is, is the potential of penetration to a lot of the, the mid-tier and, and also the smaller sole practitioner law firms. Challenges with small to mid-sized law firms really has a lot to do with um, economics, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, probably first and foremost with the transaction costs. And so purchasing decisions for outsourced legal services, particularly those offered in jurisdictions outside of the U.S., have pretty significant transaction and purchasing costs associated with these transactions in terms of due diligence and understanding vendor delivery models and ensuring supervision of these outsourcing vendors. One great thing about the Pangea 3 deal in, in terms of being acquired by Thompson Reuters, it's certainly a validation of the market, and, and, it, and it certainly... I feel will decrease the transaction cost, particularly whenever these services are bundled into other Thomson Reuters information services. The, the transaction costs of engaging LPO are, are tremendously lowered. And, you know, and also a, a similar um, phenomenon that, that will also happen as LPOs mature and, and, and the adoption increases is the scale threshold will also decrease. And so initiating a project with an LPO vendor is, is typically done in a different fashion than other types of work that's sent to law firms. For example, there, there's much more upfront process-driven planning, technology integration that essentially means that there's there's a higher upfront cost, but in, in the back end, whenever you have a large-sized project for an LPO vendor, I'm certainly amortize it out into a very cost-effective solution, but there is a certain scale threshold. And with the economic and transaction costs coming down by some of these large players getting into the market that already have existing relationships with many of these small and mid-sized law firms, that scale threshold will also go down as well. So I certainly think that this is something that, that has a lot of potential to develop, and I think Natalie Thompson Reuters certainly consider this as part of their approach to uh, working with Pangea, but there is you know, some certain issues in terms of cultural challenges of smaller firms of partners basically being used to being up to their elbows in a lot of these matters and may have, you know, kind of challenges with sending some of this work to an outside vendor as well as just the learning curve of collaborating on a globalized platform. But as we've seen with other innovations in the past, these things certainly do come around. And, and even if large law firms do adopt these earlier, mid-sized firms and smaller firms typically do follow suit, particularly if there's a very compelling proposition, uh, value proposition, which, which I believe there is. Okay. Professor Robertson, Michael mentioned that Pangea will have U.S. offices. I'm curious, what is your sense of, do lawyers prefer to work with U.S.-based LPOs? And can a U.S. LPO be as profitable as the ones that operate overseas? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I think that as to the first question, whether they prefer to work with U.S.-based providers, I think that's not their biggest concern, especially for a lot of these corporate clients that we're, we're seeing really driving the LPO process right now. Their two biggest concerns are cost and quality. 
And to the extent that they can get really quality work done at low cost abroad, I think that they're, they're happy to work with international partners. But having said that, what I would call actually multinational LPOs really are the future of the LPO world, where you have a vendor who has some people working in India, maybe some people working in the U.S., and that international collaboration can offer some things, I think, that, that a, a local LPO couldn't do. Time zones, right? So if you, if you have people um, on both continents, you can work around the clock. Economies of scale, labor costs, I think these kinds of things are really kind of driving the, the multinational LPO. Okay. And Brian Barbison, let's talk about your business, which prepares appeals. And tell me, how does the cost of using your business on an appeal differ from hiring a private law firm with an appellate practice? If a law firm is handling an appeal and they have to make a choice to bring in an appellate boutique or to handle it on their own and maybe turn to us for procedural assistance or possibly even research and writing assistance, the cost would be lower than bringing in an appellate boutique. And sometimes it's not appropriate to lower the cost. Some things are really most amenable to an appellate boutique. But primarily, we're going to save the money by bringing our expertise and our processes and our systems to bear on their particular matter that we use 8,000 times a year where they may handle maybe one or two or three times a year. Many of our clients we only see every other year. So we bring a tremendous amount of expertise and infrastructure to bear for their matter that they wouldn't have access to and the costs are similar to what it would be required for them to spend on their own and less than would be required for them to spend by bringing in a boutique in most cases. And, Brian, perhaps this is too wide of a question, but can you tell me how do you decide what you're going to charge a client? Our, I mean, say somebody I, comes in if you can watch writing and research. How do you decide? I mean, is it pretty easy to figure out what it's going to cost? Well, in the case that we have somebody looking at a particular matter, whether it's for appellate procedure or whether it's for research or writing, we have experts that look at their matters and price them, and primarily our experts are attorneys, and primarily they're attorneys that have been doing this work for a tremendous amount of time. Our pricing is driven by what it is we do for them and how much of it. We work on an estimate basis. If the specs of the matter change when it gets into our hands or they've changed by the time it gets to the court, it changes the pricing. The person that is the director of our legal research and writing group has a very fine-tuned expertise in looking at an appellate record and determining from a conversation with the counsel about the issues that are presented and the size of the record about how much time it will take him to do an effective job on his matter. We also always build in a caveat that if we tend to go beyond the scope of what we've estimated, that we consult with the client and make sure everybody's on the same page. Mm. Generally, we hit it pretty close. So it's it's driven by what it is we do and how much of it we do for you. And, Ryan, do you feel like your relationship works better when your company is managed by the law firm or the general counsel? We work with very few general counsel, but the ones that we have had experiences with, while they're great people to work with, it is a better relationship typically when it's managed by the law firm. And why is that? Generally, when we get a general counsel involved, the focus is on cost. Mm. We have a hard time connecting cost and value in some of those cases where the law firms that have already worked with us time and time again understand the cost and value proposition that we put forward. Okay. And, Michael, 
How do you define the difference between a law firm and an LPO? In terms of probably a legal ethics angle on this, I'd probably shy away from that. Um, you know, UPL is certainly a touch, touchy issue in terms of what actually constitutes the practice of law and who is qualified to do so. You know, I mean, that, that's certainly something that, that law firms and, and clients of LPOs should always consider when they're really working with their respected LPO providers and just what they feel comfortable with in terms of where the realm of law firm ends and the and LPO begins. And, you know, certainly different LPOs have different perspectives on where those lines are drawn. And so I'd probably shy away from where I would consider those lines drawn, but I would probably want to focus a little bit more on how they interact differently as well as how the LPOs operate differently than law firms. And in terms of interaction, and this kind of builds off of what Brian was saying, it's a really interesting dynamic whenever you have that triangular relationship in between an outside LPO vendor or even a firm like Brian's, the general counsel, and then the law firm. And and in terms of the LPO industry, that's one of the integral issues that we're still sorting out as industries is what's the best way for these three parties to interact together in that triangular relationship. So I think that's definitely something that's still a work in progress. And, you know, I think maybe by the end of this year we'll have a better idea of what that looks like and what it feels like whenever law or LPOs interact with law firms and, and, and their clients, but it's something we're still exploring at this point as an industry. You know, certainly in terms of interaction, the, the basis of the work a lot of times for LPO is fairly project-based, and that's probably due for the services offered by LPOs, which are a lot of times driven by litigation. And so those are fairly strongly project-based, although there is a certain growing contingency of ongoing support by LPOs. And so certainly some different um, dynamics there in terms of interaction. In terms of how LPOs operate, I would say this is probably where we see the largest difference in between law firms and LPOs, the delivery of an LPO is, is fundamentally different, and it's really predicated on two primary approaches that they have that law firms typically don't take whenever they're delivering legal services, the first of which is, is technology integration, and, and the second is the ability to embed process and rigor and metrics into the delivery process. And so... While LPO is certainly known for the hallmark of uh, labor arbitrage, either abroad in, in low-cost jurisdictions like South Africa, India, and the Philippines, as well as domestic locations and, and lower-cost jurisdictions within the United States and the UK, what we've seen are real value drivers. And the reason that the industry has been so successful is their ability to integrate technology and also embed these processes into to the delivery models, something that you typically don't see from your average law firm. So that's one definite area where we would see a, a significant difference between law firms and LPOs. Also, along with the lower cost base that LPOs are able to offer because of how they deliver the work as well as their typically their lower cost location, they're able to perform a lot of services that law firms can't economically provide clients. They're just not cost effective. Simply put, a lot of times these services wouldn't be performed at a cost threshold that would be acquired by a law firm. For example, you see this a lot with contract management. Essentially, this is a very new area in terms of legal services because it was so uneconomical for, for a law firm to, to go into a corporation and review and analyze and build out their entire contract management portfolio. Whereas with LPO's lower cost base, this is something that's really been a growing field and continual in the coming years as, as a pretty significant service area for LPO's. And I would say another final area in terms of differentiating in between law firms and LPO's is, is the fact that 
based on the law firm model, it's a partnership-based business structure. And so what that means is that every year the law firm essentially cashes out. And so the difference with LPOs is that they're able to essentially make longer-term investments in growth, growth capabilities, technology, et cetera, and that's mainly because, unlike law firms, they're not cashing out at the end of the year. And so th- those are probably the three big differences in how they operate is, is the delivery with technology and processes, the lower cost base in terms of performing additional services, and also the investment cycle is certainly different than a law firm. So going forward, I, I think it's, it's always a fair question of are we going to see law firms acting like LPOs or are we going to see LPOs acting like law firms? And I think one of the trends that, that we've seen in um, it's been actually quite interesting in the past probably six to eight months is that we've seen a lot more law firms acting like LPOs than LPOs acting like law firms. Certainly we'll also see some interesting basically melding between the two law firms and LPOs in the U.K. in the coming year with the implementation of the Legal Services Act. So certainly a number of things going forward and, and you know, possible melding in the future in terms of law firms and LPOs, but still some fairly distinct differences in how they interact with clients and, and how they operate as well. And, Brian, what do you think of those definitions? Do you agree? Well, when that question comes up, I wear two hats. I am a Mm -hmm. licensed attorney, and I'm also a business person providing legal process outsourcing. I agree with some of it, and I think to refine it, when I look at your first question about whether PENGF3 is competition and this question about whether a law firm and an LPO are melding or what's the difference between them. I think about ethical obligations. I think about whether a company or a lawyer is in a position to give legal advice to render representation in front of a judicial body. And so those, to me, are the core functions of an attorney and and necessarily the association of attorneys called a law firm. So all the rest of it, I think, can easily go outside the walls and be in support of your core function. So a law firm is one that can represent a client, that can give that client advice, that can maintain the ethical obligations of confidentiality, privilege, those types of things. Reviewing a contract, managing the appellate process, providing research and writing, those are things that are in support of your core function and your ethical obligations to your client. That's how I view it. Okay. Professor Robertson, what do you see for LPOs in the next five years, and how do you think young lawyers will figure in with this change we're seeing in the practice? Well, I think we're going to continue to see tremendous growth in LPOs. It's really taking off, and every year in the past few years we've been seeing just amazingly quick growth that I think is going to continue. I think a lot of young lawyers and law students are worried that that's going to hurt their job prospects. So now they have to compete globally with people who are earning lower salaries. I actually think that's less of a concern than a lot of people are worried about. I think that the growth in LPOs and outsourcing of legal services generally is going to increase the number of legal services that people purchase, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing that in a lot of these areas already. And I don't think it will have a negative impact on employment of lawyers in the United States. I think, if anything, there will be a growth. What I do think is really interesting um, that we're starting to see a little bit, and I think we'll see in the future, is the expansion of LPO into other sectors of the law. And primarily we've been talking so far about large corporations outsourcing legal services, especially in support of large-scale litigation. And that's what has, I think, driven the growth of the industry primarily up to this point. 
But we're starting to see some other kinds of services coming out. Um, there's some smaller LPOs that are offering services to pro se litigants, offering to help them prepare their court filings, prepare documents for them, consult with them on legal strategy. And that's something that really interests me because I think that we have tremendous underserved populations. To the extent that LPOs can decrease some of these costs and provide some of that support to litigants who wouldn't otherwise have access to legal support, I, I think that could be a very good thing. Of course, it does get into UPL issues and might put pressure on state UPL boards to either open up legal practice more, to allow more unbundling or other sorts of pro se support. But I, I think that LPO is definitely going to grow and grow in some interesting ways. Well, that's everything. I want to thank you all so much for your time. I really appreciate it. This ABA Journal podcast was brought to you by Westlaw Next, building on the strengths of Westlaw to bring you the next evolution of legal research. The most significant innovation in 30 years, it's a complete research system that gives you confidence you found the most relevant information, and it elevates productivity with intuitive workflow tools. Learn more at westlawnext.com.